Hey, everybody, Observations. here we are. I'm Rob Liefeld. Thank you for hanging out with us. We continue our journey through the making of Deadpool, all things Deadpool, not just comics and cartoons and video games and action figures and Funko Pops and keychains and Pez dispensers and giant worldwide blockbuster films. No, all of it. We're doing all of it. We're taking our, we're taking our time. I'm walking you through because like no one else that you will hear from, I was there from the beginning, from my um, you know, twisted brain, from my uh, twisted sketchbook. Uh, Deadpool came to life. I brought him to life. We published him with Marvel uh, in, in 30 years back. 30 years back, New Mutants 98 made his mark. You guys uh, never look back, carrying him to popularity that was um, really unheard of. Uh, I think about the 90s. I think about that year. I think about the characters that were introduced. Uh, you know, someday I'll compile a list of characters that were introduced at that time. But, you know, Deadpool, uh, along with most everybody that was in New Mutants Next Force, have very been very fortunate to have stood the test of time. These characters have stood the test of time. It's fun. 30 years is a big, giant anniversary. It's fun. It uh, makes me feel really old. And so I kind of like that because I like being old. Old is fun. I, I, people who knew me in my 20s know I wanted to hurry up and be older. Uh, because when you're young, people don't take you as seriously. No matter how hard you try, they, they, they want to see you uh, get glean, you know, the lessons that life has coming your way. And, and then you get to the other side and, and somehow it's just, it's just part of life. We just respect people who have done more. And now 30 years, Deadpool has done a whole lot more. He's, you know, no longer a teenager, well through his twenties, 30 years old. And we have, uh, discussed a great length comic book representation of Deadpool, uh, the, the, the origins behind his inspirations uh, uh, that, that I that I had, uh, which, which ranged from Boba Fett, which ranged from Snake Eyes to Spider-Man, all of these elements that were influencing me at the time to give this great counterpoint to my heavy uh, kind of futuristic soldier that was Cable. I wanted something different, a, a, a breath of fresh air with my uh, wise-ass mercenary, and Domino and all the characters that came with them, we made an impact. The, 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 the impact was, was fortunate enough to carry over. You guys sent mail that was unlike anything Marvel had seen at the time. It wasn't just my editor telling me that. It was the sales marketing uh, manager named Sven Larson who helped me launch X-Force. If you listen to the uh, making of the, the cable episodes of this podcast, which I, I did probably mount now four or five months back, uh, they're, they're called The Cable Guy. It's told in two parts. Sven Larsen was very uh, important in, in, in convincing Marvel that Cable would be better off in a new vehicle uh, called X-Force, which, which was what I was pushing for. And he was my immediate ally because he felt like the New Mutants book had not... It was no longer the New Mutants book that, that, that was sold uh, to the public when it was created by Chris Claremont and Bob McCloud. It had taken on a new... Uh, completely new vision transformed under my kind of leadership and guidance. So that was fun. And, and again, that didn't come easy. That was a fight. That was a struggle. Um, my editor was always behind all my storylines, but it, marketing was a completely different animal. I don't know. I, I, I want to know why. I, I have never asked why that um, they were resistant to X-Force launching when it did because it dropped them 5 million units. They made uh, their publishing company. 
They were in trouble in the 70s. They were about to go out of business because they were bleeding red ink. Star Wars saved them, put millions into the company, which allowed them to do more experimentation, keep all everybody they loved on board. So when a book makes a lot of money, like an X-Force, that's good for the entire company line because X-Force as a series continued to make a ton of money. Deadpool is front and center in X-Force number two, which sold 1.5 million copies. The, the, the carryover when you sell 5 million is that your second um, you know, issue is going to be in the millions still. And, and we were. And again, so Deadpool between, uh, you know, between the, uh, the New Mutants 98 exposure, the, the exposure in X-Force number one, the exposure in X-Force number two, he continued on in X-Force four, uh, five, uh, you know, uh, 10, 11. I mean, uh, Deadpool was a constant. He was definitely a dedicated cast member. We uh, accelerated his appearances because you guys demanded it. I've literally learned and understood the because you guys demanded it. The, the most that I've seen this reflected recently in two really giant pop culture earthquakes is Mandalorian and Cobra Kai. Both of those uh, were given greater... Uh, respect, treatment, priority by their respective publishers slash studios, production companies as a result of fans showing up and frothing at the mouth and, and demanding that they get a better version, that they, that they continue to take the care that, that, that brought the visions of these recent incarnations, Cobra Kai and Mandalorian, that they, they, they because fans responded as well as it did as they did, and I know Cobra Kai was on on YouTube first, but it had buzz. It just YouTube couldn't get it to the place that Netflix did. Netflix wisely saw the buzz, saw the numbers, saw the raw data, said we can we can take this to the moon, and they shot it to the moon with their distribution network, their brand name, and obviously season three being in the can. Those producers. Are, are like Favreau in that they know exactly what we want to see, how we want to see it, and when we want to see it. Mandalorian Season 2 was just an exemplary, uh, you know, example of, of a guy, Favreau, Filoni, two guys, giving us exactly what we wanted, when we wanted it, exactly how we wanted to see it. And the payoffs were, were plentiful. We all know exactly how we, 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 how excited we were on the couch, you know, whatever lounge chair, wherever you were watching the, the season of Mandalorian where it was just one awesome reveal and punch and twist after another. And that is what it was like on New Mutants X-Force and it was very exciting. And then we've covered how Deadpool had has had so many incarnations from wise-ass um, and badass to complete almost goof, goofy buffoon parody style. And there's literally been something for everybody. We, 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 we uh, covered how he is like a modern-day Spider-Man. And then the, at Spider-Man's peak in the 70s, there was four different versions of him. The kids' version, the Peter Parker-skewed version, the more action-oriented version, and then the version where he would meet a different character in the Marvel Universe every single month in Marvel Team-Up, which was one of my preferred, uh, you know, one, one of my preferred representations of Spider-Man. But with Deadpool... There have been a, a ton. We didn't cover Deadpool Noir, which was a younger Deadpool, a with those really cool uh, Jay Lee covers. Deadpool Max is where they leaned in and made him hardcore R-rated. Um, prior to the hardcore R-rated uh, Ryan Reynolds version, although that was already in the works and announced 
Uh, Marvel's always good at coming in under an announcement, flying really fast. That's the beauty of publishing, that if something gets out there, you can follow it very quickly. Bill Jemis had the script uh, back in 2002, the Spider-Man movie. And so they used the focus of that movie and implemented it because he is, he is go back to those ultimate Spider-Man number ones. You forget he is the story credit along with Bendis. Uh, Bill Jemis on the, on the omnibus is, is li- listed as, as a co-writer. Okay. Bill Jemis uh, took that screenplay, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man. They knew that he was going back to high school, the younger version that, that they ramped up all that stuff and reflected it in ultimate Spider-Man as the Raimi version was filming. So that you would think that the publisher and the, and the studio, in this case, Sony were hand in hand, you know, bringing you the exact same vision because they had the advantage. They had the advantage right now. I have a screenplay of one of my characters that is going to screen to, uh, to film. And, uh, I know exactly what's going on there and I could reflect it if it hadn't already been reflected because this script is super faithful to what we did in the comics that the, the meat of it is super faithful, but there are nuances that I could implement today and, and, and it would in many cases get there before the film. In every case, actually, if I decided to put this out three months from now, they're not making this movie prior to me publishing this comic. I can get it out faster. So, so, so publishing always has a way of getting, coming right alongside. And there was an R-rated Deadpool. It was going forth. They've been trying to make it since 2010. Deadpool Max comes out. It adheres actually 2009. They've been trying to make it. And, uh, and so, so I, I just, um, it was really, really exciting in, in regards to, uh, to, to watching the R-rated Deadpool Max, um, come out and kind of set the table. But today it's more along the lines of all the licensing, all of the, um, all of what, what was to come after the, after the comic book success, as I told you in 1992, Deadpool toys were already in big box stores, Walmart, Target, Toys R Us, KB Toys, Toy City, whatever toys spinoff, um, the, 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 the toy stores, KB Toys, Toy City, they're gone now. Toys R Us is gone. Maybe it's coming back, but the big box stores have so become the domain of all these toy stores, but they were still there selling these toys back then. And the X-Force line of toys, Cable, Strife, uh, Kane, Deadpool, they were all, all available at big box stores. And, uh, and, and the thing is that, uh, that, you know, that, that means that mom and pop could come in with little Billy and that little Billy could absolutely 100% encounter the, uh, encounter the, the, the Deadpool character for possibly the very first time at a uh, generic location, not a comic store, that would allow them to go, who's this cool character? You know, who is this cool character that, 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 that with the blue, what, what, I mean, with the black and red and the size, the, 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 the knives, the, uh, um, the, the, the guns, you know, who kind of looks like Spider-Man with guns and swords. Um, who is this character? And maybe just say, mom, buy me this character without ever reading the comic book. Same with, with Cable. Who is this GI Joe looking X-Men guy? Okay. That's how it works. Okay. I was into GI Joe before I was in to, uh, the, the toy before I ever was into any of the other licenses. And, um, the, the thing is that, that I am just, uh, really, you know, excited by when I used to go to Gemco and those memories 
of seeing all the G.I. Joe action figures. And then later, I saw that there were like comic book records that I could listen to the record and turn the page. And then, you know, later I found out there was other forms of merchandising, but it all started with the toys. Toys are powerful. Toy shelves um, are, are, are still a giant priority for girls and boys of all shapes, sizes, colors, race, creed. Um, we love our collectibles, our toys, and so much of the toy aisle is the advertising. You know, uh, this 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 last year it was pretty funny because um, funny or sad, depending on how you look at it. I don't mean funny mocking. I just mean kind of like ironically funny that there was uh, Gal Gadot Wonder Woman eighty four toys on the shelves as far back as June in Walmart. The Gold Eagle Alex Ross looking um, design. Uh, there was there were King Kong Godzilla toys that were out. Um, you know, I, I, I went to uh, Best Buy to get the computer that I am recording uh, this podcast on, and there was all these newfangled uh, Top Gun restoration copies with new box art, and obviously that was uh, put in motion because they thought that Maverick, the sequel to Top Gun, was coming out. So the toy aisles, with all of their various m- means to, to reach you, and the video aisles... Um, had product this year that didn't necessarily line up with what's coming out. Black Widow. Black Widow had an entire toy line. All of the toys. Taskmaster. Everybody. Um, a, 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 th- th- those 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 toys are already gone. They've already cycled out. They've been here. They were gone. The, the movie kept getting moved. There wasn't enough uh, to, to match up. Now, I understand with Baby Yoda not releasing it because you want the surprise there. And there was no way to put that into production without somebody along the line Somebody in the plush department, somebody in the action figure department, somebody somewhere would have leaked. And so they were wise to sit on that because the element of surprise um, is, 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 is just outstanding. And uh, I just feel like the, uh, you know, the, the payoff was that, that, you know, Grogu, Baby Yoda would then come down the line. It would come and follow the success of the show, but obviously the pandemic even delayed the production of that, but again, that, that, you know, you read again and again and again and again and again, how Disney was frustrated. They want that licensing, that merchandising out. Wait, you mean the biggest entertainment company puts priority on licensing and merchandising? Yes. You know who else put priority on licensing and merchandising? It is the most infamous story of all time is George Lucas, who kept the licensing and merchandising end of his agreement when Fox greenlit Star Wars. And as part of the, uh, the compensation for him doing the film, Uh, Instead of taking money, he took the deferment on the licensing so that when action figures and and t-shirts and and comic books were made, George got a piece of that. Let me tell you something. That is significant. George has been very honest in all his interviews that he built Industrial Light and Magic. Lucasfilm was built on licensing monies, licensing dollars. That's how important this stuff is. Well, I am here to tell you that Deadpool is currently in a showdown with Spider-Man as their number one licensed character. And he has been for many, many years. Spider-Man has sat alone at the top for year after year after year after year being their most licensed, most popular, most recognizable character. Well, leading up to about six, seven years prior to the film, Deadpool had kicked up in the licensing. How do I know this? Guys, who are you talking to now? I get the stubs. I get the I get the, the agreements. I get the... I, I, I receive... The uh, the the my, what do we call it? My, my 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 participation and the statements and the statues and the action figures and all the ways that Deadpool was being um, 
you know, wonderfully manufactured. And this is great stuff. It would be one thing if they were, you know, crap products, but they're great products from, from the licensing, from, from the very first toy in 1992 at the big box stores to the next toy, to the next toy. By 1996, there was four Deadpool action figures. So there's almost one a year. That means that the, that the desire was there. The desire was there. They do not, we're going to continue to get back to this. They do not make stuff that you do not want. They only want the easiest sell possible. And when the easiest sell possible is achieved, they are going to make more of that. They do not make more of something that you don't want. They want to give you more, okay? And there's going to be, we, we can discuss some funny ways that they've figured out to give you more of the same repeatedly Where when it comes to Deadpool because you and me, because I am the audience, um, we love it. We buy it. We consume it. But from the toy biz figures to next the late the the, the of course the uh, the the Hasbro uh, figures as toy biz became Hasbro to the Diamond Select figures and statues to the Mezco figures to the NECA action figures to the uh, to the Hot Toys <laughs> to the Toys era yes that's the name of a company um, I, I mean guys I'm 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 completely overwhelmed by how many different companies. Um, Yamaguchi has put out some of the best Deadpool action figures, cable action figures, but, uh, the, 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 the sideshow collectibles, um, XM statues. I mean, you guys, it is, it, and the detail, cause I'm looking at them. I'm kind of distracted cause I am, I'm looking at them. I'm looking at a sea of them right now and they're all fantastic and wonderful. And some of the foreign stuff who's, who the name isn't rolling off my tongue right now. They are some of the, you know, most spectacular. And then even if I've only given you six or seven, uh, manufacturers, I haven't told you that they come in 12 inch, 16 inch, three inch, six inch, all different platforms, all different sizes. Uh, I mean, th there have been, you know, we're not even talking about the iPhone covers. Okay. We're not talking about the t-shirts, the lunch pails. A couple of years back, two years back, the Deadpool, um, Jack in the box, you know, there comes Deadpool. Awesome. Awesome. Love it. Have many. Uh, don't, don't, I, I will not, uh, uh, confess when maybe last night I was, I was opening my Deadpool Jack in the box, but it's there, but the Deadpool licensing just blew up and Marvel wisely play, put him in several different games. And it was starting in about 2005, 2006, Marvel ultimate Alliance two was where I saw Deadpool go like, um, almost hit like mass, uh, you know, like maxed out, like suddenly like blew up. I think he was unlockable on like level three as they were penetrating the helicarrier, the established core of whatever it was, Captain America, Iron Man, Wolverine. And once you unlock Deadpool, he had a fantastic power range and skill set and the weaponry, the guns and the knives. Because again, this generation loves their gear and their weaponry. It started with me from G.I. Joe on down and now from my, you know, my sons from tour of duty, um, all the different, uh, uh, you know, all, all halo, all of the different kind of gear gun weapon oriented games has only, um, I mean, and, and for me, I mean, go back to star Wars. You had, you had cowboys with guns and, and samurais with, with laser swords. I mean, that's really where it broke down and where it all started and where it blew up and G.I. Joe just, you know, maximized it and, and, and made it bigger and stronger and, 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 and gave you more. And, and so, and, but even the turtles we're all caught up in who has the bow staff, who has the size, who has the swords. Again, your weapons are extremely important when you're a kid and you're collecting and you're matching up 
who's your favorite character, who has the cool stuff. Wolverine, most popular X-Men of all time, has six knives. We've been over this. The weapons matter. The gear matters. Um, in the game, Deadpool has an array of guns and swords and great playability, play action. And that Ultimate Alliance uh, appearance blew him up. The very next year, there was a Spider-Man game. And it was uh, Spider-Man, I think it was called Dimensions. And you unlocked a Deadpool on, I believe, level 6. And I am telling you, I know people who bought that game just to play Deadpool. And we're going to get to this weird dynamic of Deadpool and Spider-Man here in a minute. The very next year, and 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 this is when I honestly, it was, it was just the biz, biggest explosion uh, I've seen outside of the film, building on what Ultimate uh, Alliance uh, built, was the... Uh, the, the fight game uh, with uh, w w w with the Deadpool characters and like the Street Fighter characters and of course now it would be the time for this to, this to fail me but uh, Deadpool was snarky he was badass he was highly skilled he was a hard out and I came over one day it's Capcom 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 versus Marvel holy crap maybe it was the second version of the game but the one that had Deadpool. And of course, we had the big screen televisions. I bought these consoles because I wanted to see these games. So it wasn't just spoiling my kids. It's like, I my kids play games. I need them to play these games so that I'm completely aware of what's going on. And one Saturday afternoon, truth, truth be told, Robert Kirkman, he of The Walking Dead, he of Invincible, he of the greatest writer of his generation, is over for Saturday lunch, 2007, 2008. We go out, maybe it's 2009. We grab lunch, we come back. Robert is an avid gamer. I am not. He is very good. Um, all of my youngest son and my oldest son's friends from the neighborhood and kind of even even beyond, it was like a Saturday game day at our house in the loft. And that means that Luke and Chase had about four friends each. The couches, the beanbags were overwhelmed. It was awesome as a dad. You love seeing that. You love seeing that your your kids are, are having the great time. We had the 60-inch... It, you know, high def television that they're playing these games on. And my son Luke had become quite the avid fighter and was pretty capable at taking everybody out. He was really good with Deadpool. Robert Kirkman said, Oh, you're pretty good, huh? And uh, my son boasted how good he was. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm great. And, uh, and, and Robert said, you think you could take me? And my son Luke was very confident. Yeah. Like, yeah, old man. And Robert's in his thirties at this point. But you know, when you're, when you're nine, you know, you're talking shit to adults, like especially in the gaming community. You got your, you got your, you know, you got your controls, you got your earphones. I mean, you're like, yeah, old dude, you got a beard. If you got a beard, you got to be old. I mean, Robert could have been 25, but he had a beard. So, you know, to my son who has, you know, no facial hair, that smooth glass skin of nine years old is like, yeah, I'll take you. Robert grabs the controls, kind of looks over to the other kids. They don't mind. Sits down with, uh, with Luke. Had not yet played this game. This game was only about a week old. And he kicked my son's ass in a way that he had never had his ass kicked digitally before and I had to hold back laughing and I Luke was very well tempered like oh maybe I should think about who I shit talk next time because it was like boom boom and I think they actually picked uh first it was a Deadpool versus a Capcom character I forget which one then it was Deadpool versus Deadpool because of course what what I then would see all the time was my kids were playing Deadpool versus Deadpool okay time out my kids don't know I have anything to do with Deadpool Okay, 
they don't know that we're getting checks for the game and the action figures and that, that, that it's putting them through school. None of that is on the table. All those agreements that I signed in 1991 uh, that have been paying me since then on every trading card, comic book, action figure. My kids, like, like it's funny. There's no indoctrination. You have now reached the age, young Liefeld. It all came out organically. They, they had heard from friends who had Googled and had asked them if their dad had created Deadpool because that was a fun day when they came into my office and said, Dad, is it true? That was fun. That was a very fun exchange. But what was funner was seeing Robert Kirkman as Deadpool beat my son as Deadpool you know, into the ground. Boing, 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 boing. Awesome. Awesome. It was great. It was great. And, uh, but that is when Deadpool, I felt became like as big as he'd ever become. Uh, the comic books had taken him to super comic book fan favorite popularity. Okay. He had a couple of series. Um, he had had a couple of different, uh, representations, but the Capcom Deadpool is where I saw kids, kids who are now, obviously, I mean, it's, 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 you know, Good God, kids who were nine when that came out or, you know, 21, 22. Um, but that Deadpool has a favor to them that Spider-Man had to the guys of my age. And again, they love the guns, they love the swords, they love the, the ninja-esque aspect to his to his movements, his creation, um, the mercenary, uh, the, the non-loyalty, the anti-hero aspect. And I've seen guys who are in their 40s, who bring their kids, who are 9 or 8 in the last several years, they've passed along their love of Deadpool to their kids, who didn't need a whole lot of pushing because they already love the way he looks, and they've played him on video games, and, you know, let's not stop. Then after that, he's um, he gets his own video game. It's an R-rated video game. It's very, very controversial because it is so harsh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I've told the story of where I showed up at GameStop after my boys' basketball camp, the, in June, the day that it was released, and at GameStop, I walked in with my kids. We had had Taco Tuesday. We had, you know, our bellies are full. We're happy. I'm grabbing the game. I don't care that it's R-rated. I'm going to give it to my son. He's going to play it. I'm going to watch him play it until his mom made him turn it off. So I've just gotten kind of to the end of the story. But the, the interaction, and if you've been at one of my shows, you've heard me tell this before, the interaction on the stage, not on the stage, at the gas register was the greatest. Because I'm in there. My kids, obviously, they love games. They're playing all sorts of different games. And uh, I walk up and I say, uh, hey, I, could I? Now, this is like, you know, 6 p.m., okay? So, hey, I would like to buy the Deadpool. They got the poster in the window. I'd like to buy the Deadpool um, video game. And the guy goes, oh, uh, sir, uh, we need to tell you, talk to you about that game. That game's a source of a lot of uh, uh, controversy today. We've had a number of them returned and been chewed out by angry moms. And I'm like, why? And they're like, well, it's, you know, they've, they've bought it for their kids and it's very raw. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm not worried. Could, could I get one? Well, sir, it's, 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 very, it's very crude and rude and R-rated, sir. And now you guys, you got to understand this is 2014. Okay, we're, we're, we're no, I'm sorry, this is 2013. This is, this is a full three years before Deadpool's in theaters. So this is really funny to me, really funny. And uh, the thing is that the guy continues to tell me, you know, really think about my purchase. And then he goes, let me get the manager. And the manager comes out and says, oh, sir, yeah, what's, what's going on here is my, my uh, you know, the clerk here just wants to let you know that, that you know, just we want, want you to know that you're familiar with this character and uh, that you're familiar with what you're buying because it has been, uh, we, we've taken a lot of returns on this today and, and we have been chewed out by quite a few parents. I said, it's, it's, it's okay. And then finally, my Chase Liefeld, who is probably uh, 10 years old at that time, goes, my dad made Deadpool. Just sell him the game. 
because I think everybody just wanted to go home. We, we had already been like, come on, I'm, I'm here. I have the money. Let's go. I want my game. And I was like, what, what? And I said, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry about my son. Yeah, no, no, no. I, 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 did, I created Deadpool. I just, I just need this game. I just want to go home and play it. I've been waiting for it. I know the guys who developed it. They, they, they've been sending me snippets of it and talking to me over the last couple of years and always kept me in the loop. So, oh, well, uh, really? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, look, look, look. Google me when I'm out of here. Uh, you know, I looked at my son Chase like, you little, you know, dork. Uh, but ultimately... They sold me the game. I'm excited. I get home. Luke Liefeld, boom, game's up. Takes me through the first two levels. There's some cursing. Cable's introduced with a nice, um, crude, lewd, F-bomb song that is still as funny today as when I saw it then. But I'm like, okay, it's okay. I'm corrupting my son. This is okay. Anything in the name of seeing dead. <laughs> well, my wife walks by. She is the beautiful Joy uh, Liefeld, my love of my life, sweet, tender heart. And, uh, there's a period, I think, the transition between level three and four where um, Deadpool sees a girl who's very endowed in a bikini and reaches out uh, like the hands are in the screen and she, it appears as if he is going to interact with this woman and um, in a way that would be inappropriate. And my wife said, what are you doing? Turn that off. And the game was turned off. And it would be quite some time till I saw the levels beyond that. Um, that is my interaction with the wonderful... R-rated Deadpool um, toy, which again, I understand did create a lot of um, problems because the kids were hooked on Deadpool from the Capcom game, from the Ultimate Alliance game, from the Spider-Man game. But but that didn't stop the Deadpool train. Or even an R-rated version one summer cannot stop the Deadpool train. And my favorite story that I tell is a rival studio, a giant studio, a giant, giant studio. I'll even say the studio. It's Warner Brothers. One of the vice presidents of Warner Brothers calls me the next year because the next year I, you guys every calendar year Deadpool is showing up in a game it's like like clockwork because he's that popular because you guys made him that popular and it's fun seeing him in all his different you know each version kind of looks different too I like the I like the Ultimate Alliance physical representation of him I like the game physical representation in his own game I liked him in the Capcom I liked him in the Spider-Man okay well now we got the Lego game and if you guys remember the Marvel Lego game, because everything Lego was blowing up crazy. People loved it. The Marvel Lego game was um, was hugely, hugely uh, 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 popular with everyone, everyone, um, and and kids loved playing it. And if you remember, uh, the the whole thing is that. Deadpool was the ultimate unlockable character. You had to complete the game to unlock him, okay? Well, like so many parents who had younger kids who didn't want to take the time to do all umpteen levels to complete the game and get, I got a call from a guy. He's an executive, high up, vice president, Warner Brothers. He's one of my buddies. He calls me, hey, Rob, did, did, would you happen to have any cheat codes for, for the Marvel Lego game so I, so I could unlock Deadpool? These are some of my favorite stories. I know where I was on the couch upside down kind of I, I would kind of lay upside down reading comics sometimes on my couch and uh I was like no buddy I do not I am not granted the uh cheat codes for this stuff you know my son just really wants to get to Deadpool he really wants that unlockable Deadpool I'm like well I wish him all the best he's like so you sure you sure and there's nobody knowing I'm like dude I can't help you this is not accessible to me but good luck and I I laughed because again the regular the big Disney rival head of Disney the, the, the head of the rival of Disney, Warner Brothers, has a kid who can't wait to unlock Deadpool. And so, you know, hey, call the creator. Maybe he has it. I didn't. I couldn't help him out that day. 
I would have 100% had I had a cheat code given it to him. But that five, six year, you know, and then Deadpool goes, they go mobile with all their games and there are awesome versions of Deadpool in all of these games. Right now, I think the Contest of Champions, Strife is the big bad guy. My big giant Dr. Doom, Magneto, X-Men villain, Strife is now getting all of the, I mean, there's a dedicated ad in the comic books of Strife coming to the game and all the digital advertising. So video games makes a difference. It has huge impact, but I'm going to wrap this up today by telling you exactly how popular I said about the Spider-Man thing. Here, here's the one aside about the Spider-Man thing. Do you guys remember in 2016, was it 2016? Um, when, uh, when, when, when Spider-Man, uh, uh, when, when, when Spider-Man, uh, came, uh, back to Marvel with, with the big, uh, what was that called? The, uh, the big, the, the big, not far from home. What was it called? Homecoming? Homecoming. Right. Homecoming. So the uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, what, you know, it was a big deal. It's Marvel. It's back with, it's, it's Marvel Productions just has signed on to co-do it with Sony. And, uh, you know, they're, 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 uh, they're gonna, they're gonna, you know, put, put the, the MCU proper have him interact coming, spinning out of his civil war appearance. You know, I mean, it was, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. And Spider-Man reunited with Marvel. is like, come on, this, this is huge. Well, um, it was huge, just like all those movies. And as such, because it was part of the MCU and, and Kevin Feige is producing it and Downey Jr.'s in it. Um, here's the deal, guys. That, that that movie had a giant budget. Okay, it had a giant budget. It had a two hundred million dollar budget. It was um, you know stacked, and uh, you know it had an, a domestic opening on July seventh of one hundred and seventeen million dollars. That is nothing to sneeze at. One hundred and seventeen. I'm on box office mojo. One hundred and seventeen million dollars. Okay, domestically, Spider Man re- reunited with Marvel with Iron Man, Downey Jr. All the trimmings. Kevin Feige producing domestically $334 million in 2017. So the summer after Deadpool, okay? Well, Deadpool had a shoestring budget in comparison, and uh, it had a $55 million budget, and Deadpool did $363 million in the United States. $363 million for Deadpool, R-rated, restricted, Kids can't get in. Kids had to buy tickets to other movies to get in and sneak in. So other movies got some of that dollar so that people could get in those seats. $30 million better than Spider-Man Homecoming. That was the beginning of me going, what's going on here? How is this happening? Literally, how is this happening? I don't say this. Like, it, it, it literally continues to stun me that one year later, on the heels of Civil War, on the heels of the big Marvel, re, you know, re, you know, reuniting Peter Parker bringing him into the MCU that the little engine that was Deadpool uh, managed to out-earn Spider-Man Homecoming by 30 million. That is where I'm telling you, these guys have this weird, you know, I did my job, man. Spider-Man with swords was a good call. It's, you know, ultimately Marvel gets, you know, significant portions of all that money. So they're the winners. They are the ultimate winners. But where I wrap up today, Funko Pop. Funko Pops happened, what, about a decade ago? They're huge. We all have them. They make them of everything. They're fantastic. We collect them. Deadpool is the most popular Marvel, the most popular Marvel Funko Pop out producing Spider-Man who really, uh, 
Deadpool was really further ahead of him until Into the Spider-Verse, which allowed for them to make umpteen versions of Spider-Man and give them the, you know, Miles Morales and all these different elements to push Spider-Man up and close the gap. But as of now, 122 Deadpool Funko Pops to 101 Spider-Man. So if you would have told me that Deadpool would become the, the more licensed, the more favored, the more popular of the two, I'm not sure I would have believed it, but the data is the data. And we're talking Funko keychains, Funko pops, the regular ones in the box, the big super giant ones that are sold around Christmas time that are gold and blue. But look at all those different Deadpool Funko Pops. He's in the shower. He's um, dressed like a mermaid. He's a cheerleader. I mean, they have gone, they have had a cosplay application to Deadpool. People eat them up. Why do they make more than Spider-Man? Because you buy more than Spider-Man. You buy more. Also, the, the, the way they give you the more of the same, and you know the answer, it's blue Deadpool. It's orange Deadpool. It's yellow Deadpool. It's green Deadpool. I have them all. I have them all. They, they, they This radically um, different... Uh, uh, you know, just just t- taking the color, making the color different, okay, is 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 enough to put it out there and you gobble them up. And sometimes in the aftermarket, there are more. I've seen one like the glow in the dark Deadpool, the all white Deadpool. So it's literally the same model, but it's just different colors. But he sells and sells and sells and sells and sells and sells and sells. And, sells. and is that exciting? It is. It's all that's all it is. It's exciting. It's it's just exciting. It lights me up. It makes me happy when I enter retail stores and I see all the Deadpool pops next to the Star Wars pops and the Star Trek pops and the other pop culture phenomenons because that's what Deadpool has become. He launched out of the gate, super duper ridiculously popular, went on this video game ride that cemented his place with with like the kids of, of the 2000s. And then check this out, his action figure. So they call it the 2010s. 2010 to 2020 is the 2010s. The 2010s. Well, Diamond Distributors is the biggest, uh, is, is the biggest uh, comic book distributor and have been for over 25 years. They bring all the stuff to not only the direct market, but to the, now to the big box stores as well. Diamond products, toys, statues are sold in, in every Walmart, Target, they're on Amazon, they're in Hot Topic, they're in Box Lunch, they're everywhere, okay? Well, the best-selling figure for the 2010s was <laughs> Deadpool. They ranked them. They ranked them. They have a ranking. Number two was the Hulk. Dead. So Spider-Man, as an action figure, isn't even here. In the top, number one is Deadpool. Here, I'll, re- I'll read to you from the Diamond Previewsworld.com. Previewsworld.com, published last year, January 2020. Diamond Select Toys Marvel Select Deadpool action figure is the best-selling toy product of the last 10 years, the 2010s. The Diamond Select Toys ranked well overall, with seven products coming in the top 10. Uh, DC launched at number three with their new 52 Justice League action figure seven-piece set, okay? They said uh, Legend of Zelda and Godzilla made made great, great rankings, but the top 10 is Deadpool... Literally the best-selling toy of a decade, of a decade. This one single action figure, he has a wall with bullet holes as a, as a backdrop. They have gone back to press, gone back to manufacturing this umpteen times. Marvel Select Deadpool is number one. Hulk is number two. DC Collectibles, Justice League, seven-piece set. Juggernaut, um, uh, let's see, uh, uh, Marvel Gallery, Deadpool PVC, a Batman animated series, Batmobile rounds rounds out the top 10. You guys, this is crazy. Deadpool was the best-selling 
figure over a 10-year period, and that figure came out in 2014, and it was just as popular in 2016, 2017, 2018 as it was when it launched in 2014. I have seen them. There are oodles and oodles and oodles and oodles and oodles of them, and they are absolutely everywhere because the, uh, the, 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 the fans just eat this stuff up. They eat it up. They cannot get enough of this um, visual, this red and black, whether he's a statue, a Funko Pop, an action figure from Hasbro, Mezco, NECA, um, um, Sideshow. You got it. You got it. They have it for you. Every year at Toy Fair, even though there won't be a Toy Fair this year, there'll be a digital Toy Fair. They'll show you what's coming, and it's the 30th anniversary. And and to tell you the the extent of which that the popularity of this character, I am in a car dealership with my mask on this last summer, picking up my car from being serviced. Another man with his mask on and a hat approaches me, gives me his card and says, Mr. Liefeld. I'm like, wow, they, they, they got me in my mask. I don't know this guy. I don't know this guy. I had never met him, but he said, hey, we do collectibles. We have this license. We've got the 30th anniversary of Deadpool coming up. I would love to do something with you. And again, I'm like, I can't believe this guy made me in the car dealership with the mask on, walks over, gives me the card, wants to participate, says we have so much 30th anniversary stuff coming. So the next year is going to be great. More stuff. Um, continue to close the gap on that Spider-Man. Outsell him as a Funko Pop. That's fun because we're just having fun here. This is just fun. Don't read too much into this. I just get excited. It's fun. I want more shelves. I want more stuff for more shelves. And because you guys... Uh, gobble it up. They keep making it. And that's the best part of all of this. Now we are going to pivot from here and we are going to interview the, 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 the guy who knows me probably better than anybody in all of comic books. His name is Marat Michaels. Today we're having an interview with Marat Michaels who has been there, started out as my assistant, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. He has made umpteen comics himself. He's drawn Deadpool comics. He took over Deadpool Corps for the last couple issues after I left. Um, Murad is a longtime professional, uh, also entering his 30th year in the field. I'm, you know, in my 34th year. This is very exciting. So um, we're going to roll right from this into our interview with Murat, where he is going to talk to you about all things um, uh, uh, kind of comic books from the Rob Liefeld studios of the earliest, earliest era where Deadpool and Cable came out. It's going to be a fun one. Stay with us. Thank you, as always, for listening to Rob's Observations. And next up, we have Marat Michaels. So here we are with the interview that, that, that I have hyped and been looking forward to possibly more than any ever. It just, just took months for us to connect, and it's perfect that we're doing it in this making of Deadpool, Deadpool um, series. And none other than the mighty Marat Michaels. Marat Michaels, who I'm going to um, just, just give you a little background on. Marat uh, broke into the business as, as a, in, in his teens, young teens, as my assistant in, here in Southern California, always with the idea that he would go on to have his own glorious comic book career, which he has had his own glorious comic book career. He was um, right there at the outset of Image Comics, as well as Deadpool and all this other stuff we're going to talk to you. Um, right there, sharing a roof with me and my my studio for many years. He went on to uh, draw uh, Brigade. He went on to draw Nightmare. He went on to draw Deadpool Core, as I mentioned in the lead up to this. Um, when, when I left Deadpool Core, Marat was right there to take over. Uh, he has drawn Grifter. He has drawn Hawk and Dove. He has drawn all sorts of comics. But what Marat, as I, I the thing that I love the most about Marat is he is just the has this entire side, not side, his label of comics that he created a couple years ago and this publishing business that he owns and operates. 
and it has been amazing to watch him um, just run this ridiculous, which blew up in the pandemic. His his publishing, which was already successful, um, he it just just blew up. If if you if you saw the the, the numbers that this guy has moved, it, it would stagger you. <laughs> so Murat, welcome. I am so excited to talk to you, and we can talk about all the stuff that you're doing. But thanks for coming on Observations with me. Oh man, thanks for having me, buddy. I listen to this show every week, twice a week. And I tell everybody all these stories I've heard numerous times, and they're still interesting for me to listen how you present all this stuff and your energy and your enthusiasm. So I'm super excited to be here. Oh my gosh, you are so kind, Murat. I mean, we, so, so, I mean, I really appreciate you saying that. This is obviously, as you know, because you're my buddy, is, uh, you know, I mean, Murat was in my wedding. I mean, again, we are, we are deeply ensconced in many, many years and, and lots of travels. Um, but this, this, podcast to me was like my therapy so I'm, I'm just you know it's it's uh it's my, my my blue yeti is my shrink this beautiful <laughs> mic i'm staring at right now has has if it could only charge me by the hour but um marat let's start where did we meet how did you and i come to know each other okay we met at a small monthly show um in los angeles i was 12 years old and you were 16 and uh all these local comic artists used to come to the show and uh, you being an Orange County guy, you kind of made guest appearances, I guess, compared to some of the other guys. And uh, that's how we met. Okay. And, uh, I need to establish some one thing for everybody listening, because because everything you just said is 100% right on the... Um, how tall were you when, at 12? I was probably, I don't know, 5'9", five, 5'10". Five, I was a big kid. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> how, how tall are you now? I'm about 6'2", six, 6'3", six, on a good day. You're a guy. You're like a big 6'2". You're like a you're, – I have friends who are 6'3", and 6'4", and but, but Marat, you're a tall, big guy. And when I met you, I mean, like, Marat's being kind. I, mean, I think I've always been a generous – they actually did because I had to get a, you know, a health checkup, and they still put me at 5'10". But Marat was towering over me at 12. Just let's, <laughs> let's just establish this. So the 12-year-old was towering over the 16-year-old, but Marat is right. We It was the Biltmore – hotel in Los Angeles and they had a monthly show and I couldn't make them all, but you live like nearby in the city. I live probably about 40 minutes away, but my mom, uh, let me after months of begging, just let me take the bus every month. So oh, that's awesome. So 45 minute bus ride. I was there. You could not get me away from comics at that point. And these shows, uh, just, just like Mariah saying, once a month, you would get a Marv Wolfman. You would get an Al Milgram. You would get a Paul Galassi. These are the ones I remember. You know, yep. one guest basically, a room full of dealers. It's really charming. I, I there are occasionally shows like this that are still thrown that are so charming because they recall those early convention settings where it wasn't about the production value of the show. It was just the people. It was comics and artists, and it was fun. Um, but Murat, we would have our own work that we would show each other our own development of our work. Cause you were drawing and I was drawing. And again, we've established you were about to become a teenager. I was a teenager. I was in high school. You were entering high school. And do you remember who was your favorite artist? Uh, at that time it was between John Byrne and George Perez. Those were my guys. We, we would always, and, and I think for, for, at that period you were more Byrne and I was slightly more Perez. Um, or it was flipped. It, it, it doesn't matter. We would always engage in whatever either of them was doing. Because those two artists, as I've covered on this podcast, they they 
are so influential to everybody who read comics from 1975 to 1985. And Marat and I, so what was the year? Was it 85? Was it, If I was 16, it would be 84, 85. Yeah, 84, 85, exactly. Okay. And, and then I know Art Adams was our big unifier because we yes. just both just lost our minds when we saw Art Adams' work, so. And, and I did a podcast on him too, for that reason. Yeah. It was like, what is this? Who is this guy who's merged all these killer styles into this one artistic vision? Yeah, that, I mean, people all, all also, because we like those crispy inks, like the Terry Austin, right? Oh, that's that's where I live, buddy, you know this. And exactly, <laughs> and Art Adams had that crispy line too, right? He did, he did. No matter who inked him, it kind of transcended, uh, his pencils transcended the inks. And, like. and when he would ink himself, he was also trying to kind of ape Terry Austin, it felt like to me. Like, he knew exactly how to get that same element in his line work. Um, so there was a guy who, tell me his name, Murat. There was a, there was another guy that showed up with a portfolio, and he just seemed like a snob. And he would tell us how much better he was than us. Nick, what was his name? Nick Goodich. <laughs> Nick Goodich, oh my gosh, I, I can still see him so clearly. And he was, this is the best part. He would show up with drawings of like the latest Art Adams, whatever he did in like Who's Who, right? Like yep. Catman. And be like, yeah, here's my latest. And we're like, you traced that from Art Adams. <laughs> He'd be like, no, man, that, that's me. And I'm like, okay. Like, but we're like, everyone has this story. Everyone in the <laughs> arts has this kind of story, right? Um. But he he really did a good Art Adams because he was dedicated. That's all he was interested in, in my memory. Is that right? That's true. He did have a nice ink line. He had a really crisp yeah. line. And and I think, like you said, that's the thing that kind of we all gravitated towards. Yeah. So, and, and, yeah. and but but like just but do you remember him telling us? Oh, yeah. Oh, how yeah. Was to be bigger than everybody. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He he uh, he saw you as a where I was just this like funny little kid that hung around and was eager to learn. He saw you as competition and he just knew that you weren't competition. Like yeah. he was above and beyond anything you're ever going to do. I don't These think are ever... tales from the side hall of the conventions people. Okay. <laughs> this is the trash talk that goes down at comic shows on the worst carpeted, uh, you know, that, that carpet, I still remember it. So, so seventies. Um, but, so, so we would see each other at these shows and then subsequent shows, right? Yeah, when, yeah. And and tell me how it came to be that you would um, start becoming, and we'll we'll cover what the assistant work entailed in a minute. But how did that come together? Well, when you started uh, working on Hawk and Dove, you uh, invited me to come up to your studio that you shared with uh, Jim Valentino. Yes. And uh, I started coming up and trying to absorb as much knowledge as I possibly could from you guys. And uh, right after I graduated high school, um, you offered me a job. And I uh, took it without a second thought. And I went and told my mom. And she said, uh, you can't work for this amount of money. And I said, mom, it's like starting at the mailroom. I'm going to work my way all the way up to be the president of the company. And that's the only way I could sell it to her. <laughs> right, I have no idea. I don't know what I paid you in 1990. I have no idea. So. It was it was generous for being an assistant. However, but, for a parent to hear that number, they were like, 
So my kid graduated high school and he's not going to college and he's going to make this amount. Um, but I, I knew the opportunity was priceless. Um, besides being buddies and it, I knew it was a pathway into uh, industry um, like most comic artists. And like I know you've said it numerous times, there was no backup plan. So this was it. Um, and I was going to take any opportunity given to me. And uh, this was an awesome one. And I took it and it all clearly worked out amazingly well. And and so so what people need to understand the way I was doing my work at the time. Well, it's no different than it is now. It's just technology has changed. And I, I we need to talk about the time. I don't know if you were there when the Xerox gate the Xerox guy came over and we tried to get the machine. And I'm sure you were like, if this works, I'm out of a job. Oh but, yeah, no, I was. <laughs> but, uh, but the thing is, uh, I draw my pages to this day. Very. I, I do a lot of work like the two, two inches by one inch is, is kind of the, the diameter that I, that I draw my pages. And I know the weird thing that, that unites us is you work small too. Yep. Yep. And uh, I just see it better small. I can see the problem small. I, I feel like I can, you know, just it's it's. Um, and I'm gonna be honest. I, I I feel like people who work in this method, the results are always very very solid. They may not always be spectacular, but they're always solid. The guys who kind of start drawing at the top of the page and work their way down, I always feel like they ran into something in the middle, and didn't figure it out. But then have to work it out. And while they're going down the page and it's not always the best end project. Anyway, I believe in tight layouts. I do them small. And what I had learned was to go to the copy shop, the Xerox center and blow those tiny sketches up to uh, 11 by 17 on a, on a flimsy, you know, sheet of paper, the typing paper, but at 11 by 17. And then I would take it to my light table put my Bristol board over it and I would then transfer literally from with my pencil line, I would transfer the blown up image as scritchy scratchy as it was to the Bristol board. And then I would either finish tightly penciling that or I would ink it. Now, uh, along the way, I was able to purchase a giant standing light table. And I mean, it was a full table. You could potentially put four chairs around it because it was, and it was elevated. It was steel. It was very sturdy. It was very like, it was really bright. And I had, um, this, this is kind of reason I'm, I'm telling the viewers is, is this is what was kind of the entry up now, maybe a couple times prior to that Marat would have to lean over as I used to hunch over a light table, which was his option. Cause we had both at the studio. We had both. You could stand or you could sit with the lap light table. Am I right? Yep, 100%. So, so to speed things up, I hired Murat to transfer as many pages as possible from my blowups to the Bristol board. And sizing it, look, if you work small, and, and, and obviously that's before we had printers that could take Bristol board through and put a blue line down. And back in those days, so Murat was the transfer guy, among other things. That was your first and most meaningful is is that correct? No, that's one hundred percent it. Do you, how was, many pages do you think you transferred? I have would have to say that I transferred everything from New Mutants ninety two till about X Force eight. Yeah. 
So that's quite a bit. And then it's when I started tough. inking myself, you were inking panel borders? Panel borders. Background. Yep, straight lines in the background, some rocks once in a while. Yeah. Whatever, whatever I could do to make the deadline. What was that? So again, because I, I do distinctly remember the the uh, the the earliest of the X. I I even thought you were there maybe maybe a little bit earlier than than the '92. But um, we were certainly hanging out. But I'm gonna oh, tell yeah. you, look, the, the function of an assistant goes beyond just the artistry that they are applying to help you meet your deadlines and make production. Because you know the funny thing is now, for the last 12, 15 years, I I print these pages out on uh on 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 bristol board from my epson printer but as you know another guy took over from marat when marat was graduating to pencil his own work and his name's george and i'm friends with george on facebook but george didn't have any aspirations of drawing comics but where this continues prior to filling the gap in with the epson printer and doing it at the stroke of a button there was somebody else who came in and he was the guy who did that for me at extreme and I think he also did it for other people, but 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 besides all of the hundreds of pages that you transferred, Marat, there was the camaraderie, heck yeah, um, the storytelling, the uh, and I think you reminded me. Did you take some phone calls? Uh, oh yeah, uh, Bob used to uh, Bob Harris used to call me, and he'd be and he knew uh, you're not answering, and he would just go, Marat. Be honest with me. Are we getting these pages this week? Rob told me. Are we getting these pages? Because he was always worried. Of course, uh, most most of the time for no reason because uh, we were making that uh, FedEx run no matter what. If we have yep. to run people off the road, it was happening. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I want to get to. Also, the Bob stuff we got to go back to. But yeah. Marat would sometimes on a Thursday, mainly on a Thursday, maybe on a Wednesday, maybe the most important function was that carpool action. <laughs> That 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 you would give me to get to the I can't believe how fast we got to that FedEx. There was one FedEx in Orange County that would go as late as like six to New York, and oh my gosh, I did. I th I thought we were getting in other people's cars sometimes. <laughs> There's it was a couple fast. times I'm like, okay, were you with me when I? One time I actually opened the door on the freeway to make sure I got into the next lane. I've done oh, some yeah. stuff. Oh, I'm was, not proud I of that. I was there. I was there. Okay. Okay. So there you go. So, so Marat, you saw it all. What, so, so what was your overall, when you came to um, be my assistant and, and literally just so many different functions. And I understand the one thing and you should be comfortable saying, saying this, there was a lot of sitting around, right? Because <laughs> I didn't get, because uh, I would procrastinate. There was tons of sitting around, but I'd say 90% of the time, if we were sitting around, we were talking about comics. Oh, yeah. So so it was almost like, a, you know, study class before you actually go into real class and um, take the test. Should we, should we tell everybody our favorite? Where was our favorite joint to have have um, the unhealthiest of lunches? Oh, Brea's best. Yes. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. It's still there. It's still there. When you're here next time, let's go. Let's go. And there's I'm, still, Marat, it's a, it's, it's a time machine. It's t The food tastes exactly the same. Delicious, but the same. I'm in. That's an easy um, sell, buddy. Yeah. Um, that's where I created the image logo, right? That was it. Yep. Of the napkin. It's you, it's it. me, and who else is there? I thought it was Big Chuck. It was Big Chuck. It was yep. Big Chuck. Chuck Jones, yep. 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 Our big and, and how tall was Chuck? 
six five, I believe. Yeah, he's a big, big, big boy. Chuck was six, a big fella. Um, six five, tipping four hundred. Yeah, he, he was a big guy. We love Chuck. He was. Great. Oh, he was a great guy. Um, we had a lot of visitors. So, how many people also just just were you there when Todd McFarland came by? Yes. And and I had the basketball hoop in the uh in. So, so here's the great thing. I, I need to tell people about this. This is my favorite office, it, even the bigger, more expansive Extreme Studios. I shared this office with my uncle, who was a uh, – he would sell circuit boards. He was a rep for a company that would sell circuit boards for you know giant computer systems. And he took the front office, which had the bathroom, and we eventually shared a fax machine. But um, So when you walk in, you would think you were walking into this – you know. He has a desk. He, you know, it's a, it's a sales guy's desk for technology, and he did very well for himself. But then you would enter into the giant room with like two-story ceilings, but but giant open area, like, and then you would go to the to the right of that room or the stairs that led up to our loft, and that was primarily. I know we kind of took over the place, and I paid for it. I mean, I paid like seventy percent of the rent. My uncle paid thirty percent which is why we then eventually dominated the downstairs. But it was like a big giant play area, right? <laughs> 100%. It was, a. I mean, honestly, as a 18-year-old kid who loves comics, it was, you know, Nirvana. It was so cool, so fun. Um, you know, even with the stress of deadlines, we always had a blast. And uh, again, you know, like guys would come by the office and, uh, then we got to talk about the fax machine and all the awesomeness that came out of that. Dude, do it. Go there. <laughs> tell, tell, let's talk well, about the fax machine. Well, the cool, the cool thing was we had a fax machine, which was downstairs in that open area in the, uh, when you first walk in that you described your uncle's area. Yeah. And, uh, we primarily worked upstairs when we worked. And, uh, if a fax was coming in, I would always be the one who would go downstairs and grab it. So you don't lose right. your, your, your flow. And uh, so a lot of times I'd get stuff and I'd stare at it first before I'd hear, Marat, where you at? <laughs> <laughs> then i go, oh, I've been staring at this fax too long. I got to bring it upstairs. And so stuff that, you know, we'd get faxed from Todd or from Jim Lee or from the Marvel offices, um, a lot of times I was the first one to see it. So, I mean, seriously, as an 18-year-old comic book fan, it was just unbelievable. Um, yeah. You know, sure. and uh, – and so, yeah, that, that fax machine was gold. I, 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 it was never more golden than the months leading up to Image as we were all showing each other ideas. I mean, that that's what I remember, I think, the most was here comes Jim's, you know, Wildcats. Here comes Eric's Dragon. Here comes Todd's. And, and the one thing, I've said this before, Jim Lee and myself, because we've covered on the podcast how we were the West Coast guys. And you were there, you know. The great thing is starting out as a West Coast fan, as I was a West Coast fan, and and understanding that 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 the industry was shifting. It was shifting away from the guys in the East Coast, and the power was moving to the West. This sounds like freaking Lord of the Rings and the and the <laughs> Ring of the West. Um, but we were like the 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 ring bearers of comics that were rising in the West. It was I've said Todd's in Vancouver, Eric Larson's in San Francisco. Mark Silvestri's in Los Angeles. Jim Valentino is in Orange County. I'm in Orange County. Jim is in is is in San Diego and then in I mean starts in San Francisco and he and Wilson and Scott are then in San Diego. Art to Bear is in Orange County because let's be honest also like there were not a lot of 
because I first met you, uh, well, not first met you, I met you on the convention circuit, but then you worked at the Golden Apple when Hawk and Dove was coming out. You, the, the, the premier comic store of Los Angeles, Marat, was an employee. Um, and uh, as my first work, so, so Marat segued from high school, got his high school, met him in high school at the shows, then was working at like literally the Golden Apple comic shop was the finest comic shop in in the in the Southland. It was what every other store aspired to be. And then again, Marat would then come and jam with me. But you know, there wasn't a lot of talent in Southern California. You're not not guys getting published. No, not a lot. There was uh, a there was some ep- ep- there was some epic talent in Southern California. Guys like Howard Chaikin and Dave Stevens. Yes, uh, but 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 not a lot of it. Howard had had relocated. He was an East Coast guy. He used to be in Walt Simonson and Frank Miller's studio. And then he had definitely gone west. Um, but 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 like yeah, I didn't have any access to Howard. And Dave Stevens I met once. I, I think he was very reclusive. Um and uh but we were, you know, to be honest, you and I, while we bought everything, independence, all of it, I mean, we loved our Marvel DC comics. That's that's the stuff that we loved and it was the birth of what now i mean there's so many artists in southern california but i mean you remember 1984 1985 all those people were being flown in and the big 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 names were all east coast guys um, oh yeah for sure you know and and frank miller john Byrne, simonson perez um the uh so so that fax machine jim and i convinced marvel to buy a fax machine. They didn't even know what one was. Bob was very resistant, but I think because the weight that Jim and I carried, they got one. And that, to me, that's when it started like, yeah, baby. Because <laughs> it was, even Marvel was like, what is this magic on the fax machines when they were just first introduced? I mean, it was pretty amazing. Images. Now, now in, you know, this is 10 years before email, right? But, but, you know, back then you remember it's coming through uh, the grind of that thing and, and trying to get the signal. And sometimes the signal wouldn't connect. Right. And you were just living for that green signal. And then here comes the Todd McFarlane Spider-Man page or the, you know, yeah, those I'm, I'm telling you, man, those are some great times. I rem- you were sitting there for many phone calls too. Right. I mean, Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I was the proverbial fly on the wall for a lot of stuff. I overheard a lot of things and uh, it was very cool. I felt like I was in, on the inside. No, we were, man. We were taking over. Come on, man. I, so, right. So when I'm going over the Deadpool merchandise today and, and, and you were there during the period where they would not approve the transfer from New Mutants to X-Force, right? I was. Yeah, I kept I getting turned down. Thing. Yep. And, and, and I mean, I, 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 I was so frustrated. And, and, and so what I covered before I talked to you here today, I said, you know, I've never understood the argument against it, but somehow it got made successfully twice to not make new mutants into X-Force. And by the time they did, it was really, I mean, we were kind of seat of our pants, like we're doing this. It was almost like, you know, is the NBA going to play games? Are they not? Are they not? Are they, are they? And then last year when they turned the lights on, it just happened. The bubble, boom, and 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 I just, I was like, we're running out of time to make this happen, because they had already, like, literally, I've told people, a weekend, the 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 weekend that Todd's Spider-Man came out that sold three million, they had greenlit Jim's X-Men, and so that's what gave me my hair to uh, to go forward 
and 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 convince them that they should tr transfer new mutants to X-Force. There's a famous I've put it up a couple times, a famous fax that Sven Larson, the head of the sales department, gave me when he was talking about the resistance and that like we didn't get it this time, but buddy, we'll go back and we're gonna continue to push this. And he his whole emphasis, he, he just believed, as I did, putting an X in the title would make the company I mean, it would, would do really well for Marvel, would make them a lot of money. And as I've told it, there's there's, nothing, there's no shame in selling a lot of copies. I've As I revisited already this episode, Star Wars saved Marvel from bankruptcy. They were going under. And those dollars, you know, kept everybody happy, kept George Perez on the payroll, John Byrne on the payroll, Chris Claremont on the payroll. More comics were able to be made. So you do wonder, I mean, Marat, because I think I was in, I, I was biting my nails during that time, right? I mean, will they or won't they? Give me this book. And, and to this day, I've never dug deep. It's like this one, I realized today I've never, ever examined it, but somebody was saying no, right? No, yes, that's not a good idea. Uh, no, no, having having a book that sells 5 million copies is not a good idea. So I, I, I never understood it back then. I mean, obviously there's things that Marvel and DC and all these companies do that the rest of us go, huh? But I, that was that one just seemed so simple and so easy. I, and I'm going to tell you, I, I think it was, I don't think it was managerial and executive as much as it was there was some talent that didn't want it to happen. And that is where I will end that speculation because <laughs> none of the rest makes sense to me. Um, it doesn't make sense. So, so uh, yeah, so so recently I unearthed all of my New Mutants 88. I, 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 I have the 11 by 17 all in blue Sharpie where I did stick figures. And then I drew the you remember how I would I would fold an eight and a half by eleven page, right? And yeah. make it four pages, like yep, a little 100%. mini comic. Yep. And, and then that's what you would blow up and transfer from. One hundred percent. Yeah, that was uh, man. Um, what? So so what? I mean, we were definitely influencing things because you were going to these comic stores with me, and I remember when ninety eight. 99 and 100 came out that those three issues across those three months where the crowds became ridiculous and i didn't know what was happening other than people were really digging the work right well no um, and, and i was i was same way because to me like we'd walk into a store and there'd be these huge crowds and all this buzz and you know books selling out left and right and i'd be like it's just my buddy rob what is everybody so excited about because to me you're like a guy i've known at that point a good, you know, six, seven years. Um, so it was just, it was just, I was uh, just taken aback by it um, as much as you were. And I remember us just having these conversations on the drives home away from these stores, like really realizing what, what a big groundswell New Mutants had uh, become and the explosion that was happening, you know. You know, the thing that I remember that United States, I think the thing that I appreciated about you the most is that you weren't necessarily the biggest fan of the work I was doing. You would let it be known that there were other guys you, you favored, which, I mean, I don't believe I ever, and I know that to this day, I'm not satisfied with the work I do. I'm always pushing myself, but it was nice to not have a guy who just um, naturally was like like what you just said like ah oh, you're my buddy Rob we're making comics I'm I, I see the pages before they go out and I know that you and I would go to the stores especially John Beck's comic store nearby when that opened because that's right when eight ninety eight ninety nine and and whatever Jim was doing was coming out and I've told people 
that Jim Lee uncanny X-Men run is to me the peak of his career. I, 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 in my two artists peaked on the X-Men early in their career, John Byrne, Jim Lee, it was never better for them than that. That's my opinion. You can have yours, not you, Marat, you listener. Um, there are people who are going to tell me that his Batman stuff is his best. I don't agree, but I don't take away that that's your, whoever you are's favorite stuff. But I remember, and I know, because I can speak to this, Murat, I, there were times I think I'd be like, I know I drove here, but drive back, I'm, I'm depressed. I'm depressed. That is, that is very true. That has happened a couple of times. The, the, the work, remember that issue that Wills, Jim, and Scott jammed on, so it was really a product of all three of them? Um, it was like, a, I think it was one of the early Gambit issues and it, and it was right before Jim started his heavy run. That issue, I remember going, look at the talent that, 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 that we're competing with. Right. 100%. Um, and, and I'm going to tell you something. This is the thing that I think I appreciate. And you and I both have this above all else. And I read a quote from Todd McFarlane about two weeks ago where he said he used to really admire drawing and poses and all this stuff, but he said that he's now, what what really more than ever interests him, engages him is the storytelling. And uh, and I'm like, me too. And, and you and I always valued storytelling and page layout and design above all else. Am I right? 100%, 100%. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it comes from our love for... Uh, Guys like Miller and um, Byrne and Perez, and then beyond that, Kirby. And yeah, that that's the stuff that uh, always appealed to me. You know, anybody can draw, not anybody, but anybody uh, with talent can draw somebody just standing there or leaping at you looking cool. But can you work that into a page where the rest of the panels still shine and the whole thing works as a unit? That's that's the magic. That's the special right there. And it's, it's funny what you said about anybody can draw. Because because you and I've had this discussion over 30 plus years and, you know, uh, somebody I talk to on a weekly basis, multiple times a week, you know how staggered I have become even more so in the last 10 years of everything that John Buscema did and what a master illustrator he is. I mean, figure work on down. There's nothing he didn't excel at. And then prior, like, I know that you and I both, we loved Neil Adams. Um, his, that Ms. Mystic stuff, that early extreme, that, that early continuity studios. And, uh, and I, I kind of put those two guys as like the best illustrators comics ever saw. But a John Buscema comic or a Neil Adams comic wasn't doing anyone, anything anywhere near a Todd McFarlane comic in 1990, right? Oh, and, 100%. And, and Todd, uh, he had that storytelling and page design that we're talking about. He had that element to his work. He had, he incorporated, he, th there are still, I went through his omnibus the other day and I, I was like, I remember, I have forgotten how much this inspired me, but these very creative cuts, sometimes to cut corners, but, you know, it made the work, it, it made the page more interesting. And I we would sit and talk. Todd's layouts were a big deal, I think. Uh, we both drew inspiration from them. I, I'm, I'm, I, th I mean, I think he was a really good storyteller. No, he's fantastic, and he was very creative, like you said, and the way he 
kind of crop things where most people would give you the full head and Todd would give you like, you know, half an eyeball and a bit of the nose and the mouth. And um, other people weren't doing it like that. Like, you know, you'd get a half a face from 99.9% of the industry. And then here was Todd going, I'm going to crop it in even closer, but I'm going to make it huge on the page and I'm going to follow it up with a big, you know, shot of Spider-Man leaping at you. And it just, what he did just, it, it worked. But he, can, yeah. And uh, speak, sorry, speaking to what you were talking about on your uh, last couple of podcasts, he was, he was a genius in how to get in and out of a page fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and that, that, do you remember the taunting? Um, oh, heck yeah, I do. <laughs> heck yeah, I do. Cause I used to, okay. Every time Todd called, you'd put him on speaker because. Oh boy. Uh, I don't remember. That's awesome. I'm, I'm so glad I did. Okay. No, no. It was always on speaker because the way what? Todd talks. Am I, am I on the speaker? <laughs> exactly. Um, and he was aware of it. He knew I was there. He would always say hi and oh, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Um, Todd was always great to me. Um, but just the way he talked was so entertaining, no matter what he was talking about. Yes. Like it, it was almost like a treat that it was being said through Todd's mouth. Yes. <laughs> you know, so... All this stuff that you talk about, your conversations with Todd, when you were in the office, I probably heard 90% of them, if not more. So all, all the stuff that you have said, I can totally uh, back and uh, be honest that I was there. I heard it all. Okay. Uh, and I don't mind. I don't, I don't mind doing this. There was, there was a couple days that we lost to trying to find a swipe, right? And uh, I remember... We, the, Eric Larson and I were convinced that there was a Jim Lee shot that was a swipe. And I think I just lost 48 hours trying to find it. And I know you were there at least part of the time. <laughs> Look through this. Look through these. Yeah. Look through these. Because I was determined. It was my hunt. I was going <laughs> to hunt it. I was going to. That was my Moby Dick. <laughs> and then last summer I called you and I said, Murad, I'm looking at it. I finally found it. It's right here. Do you remember that? I do. I do. I do. It was a Marvel Universe handbook, and it was Kevin Nolan. And it's the figure on that Mandarin cover, right? Uh, of uh, of Uncanny X-Men. Yep. And, and Mandarin's in, like, the suit. For the longest time, I thought it was Kevin. I thought, I think I brought in all the shadows and all the other uh, Howard Chaykin stuff because we thought it was Chaykin. 100%. Say what? It looked... So much like a shaken. Oh, yeah, yeah. It looked the way Chaken would draw the suits in the in the way he had the shadow or Blackhawk and all the stuff he was doing for DC at the time. And again, to find, I mean, I remember I called you this summer. I said, I'm looking at it. Here it is. It's 30 years later. I can't get those 48 hours back in 1990, but at least, boom. Because, look, everybody's grabbing something from some time. But it was, it, that became the holy grail. So, yeah, I'm, I there were definitely some rabbit holes that I took us down. Um but I'm glad I put Todd on speaker. I did not. I, I'm sure he was aware of that, as you said, because he would greet you. Yeah. But that is, again, you know, I, I remember. I remember the tank tops we wore. I remember the shorts. I remember the jeans. I remember the fashion. I remember the music. I remember Be Belle Viv DeVoe. I remember Bobby Brown. I, remember, I mean, Guy. Uh, um, oh, come on. Who is he? Keith Sweat. Oh, we listen to so much R&B and hip hop, right? Yeah, baby face. You, you yeah. loved it. And I'm like, white boy Johnny, 
who didn't feel so bad because my big Russian brother from L.A. was digging on it, too. Um, and uh, we would we would call it our cheesy music sometimes. Right. Um, especially when we're bumping love songs, driving down. It, you know, sure my uncle, like, what is going on with those two guys <laughs> to uh, to uh, Johnny Gill? What? <laughs> <laughs> Why are they listening to Rub You the Right Way together? <laughs> yeah, dude, we loved our R&B unabashedly. And so many of those, see, when I flip through New Mutants, I hear the songs. I hear the, you know, you turned me on to Guy. I, I, I did not know about that band whatsoever. Teddy Riley, Marat gave me completely like the business. And, and then I, I grabbed everything he ever produced. But so that's what I remember those pages too. And uh, yeah, man, those. Oh, I remember New Mutants. I remember New Mutants 100 with the Harry Deadline. Any, any. I mean, to this day, I can't believe I went from New Mutants 100 to X Force number one, double sized, double sized. Um, but I, I've always said New Mutants 100 was also the most satisfying because it had no gimmick. You know, it was just a comic book. There was no scratch and sniff. There was no triple fold out, gate fold. You know, glossy, whatever. It was just a comic and people dug it. And that that was when I really knew. 98, obviously the first issue I wrote was very well received. But uh, as, 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 as far as Deadpool, what is what are your memories of Deadpool in the studio? I remember walking in, I believe it was a Monday morning. You could correct me, but I remember walking in in the morning and you going, hey, check this out. And you showed me your sketch of Deadpool. Um, and you made a funny comment about this will show Todd, but it was a little more colorful. And, yeah. and, and you were like, what do you think? And I like what you said on your last podcast is so true because at this point I'm 18 years old and, uh, the visual of it grabbed me right away. Like I fell in love with the character before you told me anything because it spoke to me. I loved snake eyes. I loved Spider-Man. I loved ninjas. I loved Daredevil. And, and he, like, had all these cool elements all in one. And, and these colors that just, you know, red is red and black is always going to leap out at you. Potent. Uh, yeah. And so before you even blew my mind with the whole he's part of, you know, the Weapon X program um, thing, uh, I was in love with him at first glance. So it's funny when you talk about that stuff. Uh, whether it's your appearances at conventions or whether it's your podcast. I was like, yeah, as an 18-year-old kid, that was the first thing that jumped out at me. I was like, this guy is cool. I don't, I don't care about anything else. I'm a fan because this character is cool looking. Um, and yeah, I remember that you showed me that sketch and then you telling me, you know, the backstory and um, just, uh, you know, I recall... Uh, all the conversations uh, that um, you had with Bob Harris about how popular the character is, how it resonated with people instantly. Um, and, and since and, you were there, you you can absolutely back up Marat. Like when I would call up Bob at the time and pitch him something, it was always a, yeah, yeah, go, yeah, just go with that. Yeah. Yeah. At that point, I think Bob was like very happy that he can just let you, you know, be the conductor on the train and that the train was going to make it where it has to go, and it's going to get there faster than anybody anticipated. Um, so, so I think he had a very like hands-off um, approach until he had to kind of 
tweak the course a little bit, but for the most part, he was like, just get these pages in. That was Bob, I think, 90% of the time. The, the two things I remember is um, Steve Busolato, it was the first time he was coloring me on, on New Mutants 98. And so I hadn't seen the book in color, even though I would, you know, we would stuff in those FedEx boxes because obviously color doesn't translate on a fax, but I would always do marker comps. And Marvel has printed a bunch of those marker comps in the backs of the hardcover collections, whether it's the Omnibus. Um, they, they've, like, I remember John Barber, who's my editor now at IDW on Snake Eyes, <clears throat> he was the collections editor putting together the Omnibus 10 years ago. And he says, Rob, we found all your marker comps and all this, you know, and when they shot them in the back of the book, they are literally, that's my marker, you know, when you, because as an artist, you remember how A, expensive those markers are. So when we whipped them out to use them, it was like, ooh, <laughs> We're gonna we're gonna learn to, to to use our watercolor Prismacolor marker or whatever. Um, but I remember going to the comic store with you when Newman ninety eight came out, and being so excited to see how the red and black looked, how he looked on the page, and 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 the color schemes and the choices Steve Busolato made made with the background, you know, choices or maybe just leaving it all white like I asked. And I just remember going, oh my gosh, and and the cover. There's a reason Deadpool is front and center. He just compositionally looked so great, right? I mean, it's like, again, because I am sitting here again, as I talk to you, looking at all of these crazy, amazing, ridiculously sculpted, detailed statues and action figures. And I've told you this in my office before. None of these guys says anything to me. That the, These are best best selling. We did, we did the, the whole thing is on the licensing and merchandising success that Deadpool's had over 30 years today. And I read the uh, the rankings. Diamond put out that the most popular toy of the 2010s was the Deadpool action figure. It ranked number one from 2010 to 2020. He number two was Hulk. Number three was a seven figure Justice League assortment that that DC had manufactured. And uh, I tell people that visual just that that's why he's the number one selling toy of a decade. Is people he looks cool when he's in your hands. Gun in one, sword in the other. It's it's we don't give artists, and you know, I know you know where I fall on this, and I know where you fall. Artists, visuals, that's why comic books have the success that they do. Um, you know, and 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 wrapping up what I was trying to say with John Buscema and Neil Adams, these two guys are the best illustrators of it maybe ever in comics. I mean, Buscema draws from Frank Frazetta, um, Hal Foster. I mean, he he's a brilliant illustrator. Neil brought the, I think the, the the extra detail era in, but he was a hell of a figure artist, right? So anybody who does great figures is always going to go up against either one of those guys. Silvestri falls into the Buscema camp, as you know, and has elevated that by bringing all these different applications, gestures, rendering. Uh, we, we agree in this, right? Oh yeah, there's uh, those are the three best draftsmen comics has ever seen. And uh, yeah, and and yes. Most- don't even come close. The, the page design was not John Buscema's forte. He was very much a grid guy, right? Oh, and yeah. so going back to the storytelling, which is where you you and I spent more time talking about storytelling than and, and, and being blown away by storytelling, page turns, panel design, because that is what creates the tempo of a comic. And uh, 
you know, I, I've, I've told you this year, Snake Eyes number one is like one of my favorite things I've ever done because I hear the music. It's like a symphony. I'm conducting that comic. And now this many years in, that's that's what excites me is storytelling. Uh, a guy like Sean Gordon Murphy exists on the in, in, in the realm that he does because of his storytelling. He's exceptional. He's He's got both those components, page design and storytelling. Is there anybody modern age? Who blows you away? Uh, it's a good call. Uh, not not anybody that comes to mind. Um, well, you, I mean, you and I have discussed this. Most most current guys uh, are fantastic illustrators, but they're not great comic artists, and that falls to page design and storytelling. Um, I, I'm sure if I started going through piles of books, yeah, somebody somebody would come to mind. But uh, you know, nobody. Nobody that hasn't been in the industry 20 plus years. Yeah. No, and it blows me away. The guys who, like you said, can draw really well and they, and they put the camera in the weirdest places. Yeah. Sometimes creating more work for themselves. And I like what you said. Todd had the cheating down and, and, and the cheating doesn't mean, okay, I'm going to, the cheating in Lord of the Rings, the first movie, which I watched them all over the holidays again, Fellowship of the Ring. Peter Jackson has the least amount of money to work with. They didn't really believe in the movie. So they gave him a very, you know, Deadpool, actually, now that I think of it, 2016 Deadpool is the same way, $55 million. The shots had to be, yeah, you have to be more creative with your shots. And the storytelling in Fellowship of the Ring, from the ring the ring rats entering the inn to so much of what would happen, which you see later on, because he had all the money, Peter Jackson's like, put the camera all the way up in the sky and give me a thousand, give me a thousand, you know, Urukai warriors, instead of maybe being more Hitchcockian in the way the shot was crafted, because you're limited. And sometimes with storytelling on a page, even though our budgets are unlimited, our page count isn't. So you do have to get creative. Oh, I have to squeeze all this in here if I really want to get to where I want to get here. And I think Todd was absolutely, again, monthly deadlines play to this. Like you said, Todd was so good at 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 not cheating the consumer, but the 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 maybe giving a creative problem solving element right a creative solution to maybe a difficult and and yeah. it was always i i find those to be the most satisfying when you, you you look at a way somebody hadn't done something before and you go that was really clever again because how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages do we see a month right oh yeah it's, and and, and todd always had this uh you know, his attitude was always like, it has to be cool. So even if uh, he did something that got him in and out of a page super fast, it was still cool. Like, he never cheated you on the cool factor of his book. Um, no, had, 100%. And you know, you know, Todd would pull me aside and I won't say the artist's name. But like, <clears throat> Bud, what, what, what are you doing? Drawing like, fill in the blank. <laughs> don't, don't, don't. The kids don't like that. <laughs> the kids don't like, don't, Robbie, back away, back away. I, I mean, because again, he understood the cool factor. He'd be like, yeah. I, 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 I'm seeing a lot of this guy in your work and could, I, I would advise against this. <laughs> that was great. No, he, I, he's the best coach. I tell everybody, I think the toy component of Todd is undersold. He should be Hall of Fame toy guy. And he is one of the greatest 
coaches. Guy's a great coach. Um, well, I want to focus on the fact that you and I have tabled so often. It shows, especially, you know, for about a six-year stretch in the late 2000s, early 2010s. So we would sit together, and we always heard the same thing because you also – we don't draw – alike in this manner, but we both understand how Deadpool should look cool. And I've seen people say to you and to me and to us simultaneously, and it always, the one thing that you do, alike all these figures that I have, these 25 figures I'm looking at, all of them have a kind of a sinister bend to them. It's funnier if he's a wise ass, if he looks scary. Because people have said to you, I like how you draw like Deadpool, like like the way he's supposed to, like he, like he looks cool. And you understand what that means, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. 100%. Always, and, and Marat has made a gajillion dollars drawing uh, Deadpool on all these different um, assorted commissions and and um, limited edition, whatever it is that you do, where, where, where you depict him either in a sports jersey or you uh, – I mean, you just people love your rendition of him. I, I've seen how they clamor for it. And like I said, you came on board. You did Deadpool Core. You wrapped the series up in spectacular fashion. Those are great issues. I uh, thank you, I, buddy. I hearken anybody. Is it is it 10, 11, 12? Is it 11, 12, 13? What is it? Uh, 10, 11, 12. Yeah. And then I did then I did number six as a fill-in before that. So that's right. That's right. So 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 we have many. Of your hundred, I mean that that's a hundred pages right there. Um, in the last decade that came out, um, great stuff. Deadpool core. You know, I I, I remember when I was told how great the writer was going to be, and I said to Axel Alonso, "Well, let, let's see how the first arc goes." And then I asserted myself in the second arc because I just didn't feel like we were maximizing the concept. But that series definitely ended on a better at a better place than it launched, and I think I, I felt like we course corrected in the middle. But you then have become, in a way that I think even would surprise you, the, the favor, the popularity, the, the excitement that you're parody stuff, um, because you are the dead, the do you poo, do you poo, yep. is, is a Marat-Michaels <laughs> joint. Um, we don't hide that, right? You sign all the covers? I mean... I, I sign every one I've ever sold. <laughs> and... Uh, and, and and you have called yourself what's what's the moniker you've given yourself? I, I did not give it to me. Uh Brian Polito, who publishes a book called Lady Death, uh called me the homage king because of all oh, the homage covers. Dude, that's like a villain's name too. I am the homage king. It's great. It's a great name. Uh, so but I have I'm telling you, I will call you. I don't know how you keep up with it. You I did a drawing for the, uh, when I was doing drawings and raising money for comic stores last spring. I knew I wasn't getting to Tiger King as fast as you were. I'm like, Marat's going to beat me to this. I, there's no, and of course you did. It was already up. You already <laughs> had done a Tiger King. Um, you are so quick and so, and I've seen you on your Facebook before say, hey, what do you guys, what era, what comic do you want me to do? And you put it out there and fans are really interactive with you, right? 100%. Well, I mean, I, I give credit where credit is due. You told me uh, about jumping on trends before they determined the time was jump the shark. Um, and the whole idea was like, be one of the first guys, not one of the last guys to the table. And so uh, I make sure to keep up with what's current, with what's hot, with what people are reacting to. Um, you know, fan service is, uh, 
is fantastic. You're you're either an artiste, in my opinion. You're either an artiste or you're an artist who's trying to make a living doing something you love doing. Oh, you know what, Marat? Whether you're a musician as an artist, whether you're uh, a comic book artist, a filmmaker, um, I mean, come on, man. P- part of what part of the act is the hustle. It's the yep. hustle. And you know, I, there's a great documentary David Foster on Netflix who produced, you know, Chicago changed their style, made them he even says, you know, they turned on me because they didn't like what I did with Satara, but they're still cashing checks off the backs of those songs 30 years later. Earth, Wind and Fire, Chicago, Whitney Houston, uh, 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 Tony Braxton. I mean, the guy and, and it's funny that he was kind of bringing an artiste attitude to Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You. And if you watch the documentary, Kevin Costner is the one who wants that dry acapella start to the song. And Foster's like, no way in hell I'm ever doing that. And they like he he had it kind of showdown with obviously the, the movie's producer, Costner and star. And then Arista Records, the guy who discovered Whitney Clive Davis, called up Foster and said, this is how we're doing this. Get on the train because it's leaving the station without you. And now Foster's like, yeah, I should have listened to them. It, that 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 made the song like her dry acapella opening is and, and it was it's just, but you're watching it's the hustle you know yep. Costner thought there was a different aspect to it that would set it apart Foster says he didn't think radio would play it with that in it so what what they're all trying to do that what the, what I'm not saying very clearly is they're all trying to make the best album which is the biggest selling album ever and there was some artistic, you know, um, friction. And that's part of the hustle. And again, like, man, you know, Clive Davis is like, I want to make a song that sells. I, you know, I need, uh, Costner's like, I need a big song to hang this movie on. And so, so we're no different as comic book artists. So yeah, you have always, I mean, every do you poo image that you put out is my new favorite one. They're fantastic. Um, so, so if you want to look up all of Marat's do you poo get ready. Um, you're going to be looking at images for a long time. There's a lot of them. Um, and, and, uh, and what else are you working on? Uh, working on a, uh, book that, uh, you published originally at image comics or maximum press one or the other, uh, called Blindside. So Blindside. working on that, that's, love that that's, love that character. Uh, uh, thanks man. That's, that's my character. That's red and black. Yep. <laughs> so the color scheme works. Got to keep it going. Uh, yep. Exactly. Um, so working on that and, you know, have a couple other uh, projects that we're trying to launch in 2021. But uh, your, yeah, your, the, your company's name is Counterpoint? Counterpoint Comics. Yes, sir. OK, yes. so here's the deal. Um, we're going to come back and cover the image era and what it was like when CNN came and everybody made my office look like we were Image Comics office. That was great, right? Because um, who was there that night? Valentino, Silvestri, Larson? Uh, wasn't everybody there? Who wasn't there? I mean, Jim, I know Jim was not there. I don't think Jim, Jim was not there. Um, but, but man, we got that call and within 24 hours we stayed that that's worth. So, so the dawn of image comics is going to be a separate interview with you. So we're going to call this Marat Michaels, uh, observations interview number one. Okay. And so we're definitely revisiting this and soon, and you're up for that, right? 100%. This is boom. Fine. Good. <laughs> So here's the deal, everybody. Um, where, where, where can people find you on, on social media? 
Uh, on Facebook, you can find me at Murat Michaels. Pretty simple. On Instagram, it's Murat 1200. And on Twitter, you can find me at Murat Michaels, but I never tweet, so I even go there. So that's a, that's a, that's where you can find me. Awesome. Hey, everybody, listen, This um, Murat is one of my best friends. Guys in my, my wedding uh, was there from the start. Obviously, we met at 12 and 16. It, it, is that the beginning of a bromance? I think it is. Um, <laughs> here's the deal. Uh, I am on uh, social media at Rob Liefeld on Instagram, at Robert Liefeld, full name Robert Liefeld on Twitter. I'm all over Facebook. I'm all over um, social media. Please always uh, check me out. Spread the word. Tell people about the series that we're doing with Deadpool. The making of Marat was there. He watched it happen at the light table with the lap board on the couch, in the beanbag, at the desk. We had so many tables. I, I, <laughs> I desperately, I want to go back there so bad. That was a magic time. We were um, just having the best time. And comics was really morphing into a different animal. It was going up to the next level. And it was fun because we were there. We were a part of it. Um, thank you for hanging with me today, Marat. Um, to everybody who's listening, get the word out, spread, spread the word, spread the love. Um, you know, the drill you need to take care of yourselves and please stay safe. And we will talk again real soon.